The reading is uh, from Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, and can be found on page 929 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you are the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shadow, a shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that it grew faint. And he wanted to die. And he said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as Sarah's already very helpfully teed up for us, it's an odd ending. It's an unusual ending. It is not the ending we want. It is not the ending we would long for to a story. About a year ago, I started reading this book by a guy called Christopher Booker called The Seven Basic Plots. And he traces throughout literature that most stories follow one of seven major plot lines. Uh, You know, it might be overcoming the monster, where you've got to go and defeat some great baddie. Or it it might be rags-to-riches stories, where somebody starts off poor but then acquires great wealth and then loses it and gains it again, or or something like that. Um, And chapters 1 to 3 of Jonah, they fit some of these basic plot types. So one of the plot types is the voyage. You go to a faraway land and go through something, and you learn something and come back with some experience. And you think Jonah 1 to 3, that fits that story. Or there's the rebirth story where somebody needs to learn a lesson, 
So they're put through some challenges and trials, and then they grow as a person at the end. And Jonah 1 to 3 seems to fit that, that story. You think, that's great. And then someone wrote chapter 4. And you think, why did they do that? You know, it's like the bad sequel nobody wanted that kind of ruined the first film. I mean, what's going on here? It is complex. It's messy. It doesn't have any kind of neat ending. It's one of only two books in the Bible that ends with a question. I'll come back to that in a bit. It's real. It's full of pain and emotion and raw feeling. And at the end, you don't feel comfortable or nice about it. And just at the start of the sermon, I want to give a little bit of a warning and say that as we walk through Jonah 4, there are some tough and complicated themes and issues that we are going to touch on. And I'm aware in a room this size, these will be issues that are personal and painful. It might be something you yourself have gone through. It might be something someone you know and love has gone through. And so right at the start, I need to say that we are going to be treading into some of those areas. And it is important to tread on in some of those areas because the Bible goes there. And that means that God thinks it's important to talk about it. And it's also important because if you or someone you love or know is wrestling with that issue, and it seems to come up in the Bible, and then the preacher and the church service that you're at sort of dances around it and avoids talking about it, you're just going to feel invisible. They just don't want to talk about my issues at all. And so we are going to go there. Uh, and I just want to give a warning uh, at the start that that is where we're going to go, because these might be painful and personal issues for some. But let's walk through chapter 4, and then we'll come to these issues as we go through it. Uh, and so I, I've split it into two. And uh, here's the, the first part, Jonah's complaint. Jonah's complaint. And I'm really glad Peter started his reading at verse 10, because it allows us to pick up on some of the wordplay that's going on here. And I want to teach you one Hebrew word. It's the word ra'ah, and it means something like evil or bad or uh, uncomfortable or dead. It can mean lots of things, but, but it's in that kind of area. And in verse 10, it says, when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their ra'ah, when they turned from their evil, he relented and did not bring on them the ra'ah that he had threatened. It's the same word. So their bad behavior should lead to a bad end. But when they repent, it doesn't. So chapter 4, verse 1 to Jonah, this seemed very ra'ah. There's some wordplay going on here. Their bad behavior should have led to a bad end, but when it didn't, Jonah took it very badly. Okay? And now, it's now that we finally understand why Jonah ran away. Now, when I was a, a child in Sunday school and that kind of thing, I think this was always taught to me that Jonah was scared. The nasty Ninevites, he was scared of them, and so he ran away because he was worried that they'd be nasty to him if he went there. The only thing is, that's not what the Bible says. The only clue we get as to why Jonah fled is here in verses 1 and 2. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is, why I tried to, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God. 
It turns out Jonah wasn't worried about what the Ninevites might do to him. He was worried about what God might do for the Ninevites. That's why he ran away, because he was worried that his message would work, that they would repent, and Jonah would show them grace. Uh, God would show them grace. What's really important to notice here is that Jonah is the prophet of me, myself, and I. All his language really revolved around himself. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. And literally, when he says, isn't this what I said, it is literally, was this not my word? Now, if you remember back to Jonah 1, it was the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. It turned out Jonah had a word of his own, and his word and God's word were in conflict. What God wanted and what Jonah wanted were not the same thing. They disagreed. We've called the series, How Big Is Your God? Here's the thing about a big God, about a God of grace. A big God of grace is free. He's free to be who he wants to be. A God of works, a God you relate to by doing good works, you can have some control over. Because if you do your bit, you can say, well, really, God, you've got, you've got to do what I want now because I've done something for you. But if God is a God of sheer and absolute grace, the kind of God Jonah has revealed to us in these four chapters, you can't control that God. He's free. He's free to do what he wants to do. And if he's a big and a free God, he may well, in fact, he often will, disagree with you. Your word and his word, just like Jonah finds here, might come into conflict. So I want to give us 30 seconds now to reflect on this question. When was the last time you and God disagreed? When was the last time you saw something in God's word and you said, I wouldn't do it like that, God? My word is different to your word here. Well, 30 seconds in quiet, just reflect. It's a challenging and difficult question, isn't it? It's one we need to ask because what we're learning in Jonah is that big gods, the real God, the true God who is big, will sometimes disagree with us. If you've got a God you never disagree with, then it's possible you've shrunk him down. You've tried to make your own idol who will just do and say what you want him to do and say. The true God, the big God, the free God will sometimes disagree. And that can be uncomfortable. It certainly is for Jonah. In verse 3, he is in despair. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And on one hand, this is a parody of the prophet Elijah from earlier in the Bible. Elijah goes through something like, like this experience after he confronts the prophets of Baal. You might know that story. He wins this great victory for God, but no one turns back to God. Nothing seems to change, and Elijah's in despair because all this preaching seems to be for nothing. But this is a parody, because Jonah's preaching's been supremely effective, and yet he's still in the pit. He has seen a whole city repent, and that has led him to despair. He's angry and despairing because of his success. Now, we're seeing a lot of anger in Jonah, and we're seeing this self-centeredness in Jonah that he's, he's turning on himself, turning in on himself. And one definition of depression is that it is anger turned inward. 
not the only definition, but it is one definition of depression. And so many commentators have pointed out that what's happening with Jonah here is something like a depression. And I just want to touch on this because I'm aware there will be people in a room this size for whom this is a really painful personal experience. It might be something you yourself have experienced. It might be something a loved one has experienced. And this is one of the places where the Bible does talk about this kind of struggle. Now, it's important to say this is not the only place the Bible talks about this kind of struggle. For Jonah, there's also Job. And Job goes through a depression, and Job's depression, we're told very clearly, is not because of anything he's done. Job is innocent in his depression. Jonah is not innocent in his depression. Jonah's depression comes in part because of his sinful bitterness and his attitude of heart. Uh, But remember, there's not just Jonah, there's Job as well. And if you've wrestled with depression or you know people who are wrestling with depression... You've got to be careful of mapping Jonah onto you or mapping Job onto you. Everyone's own experience is their own, okay? It's individual, it's unique. So just because of a depression, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily sinned. We should never assume that. But sometimes a a bitter, angry, inward-looking, self-centered attitude can be part of what's causing a struggle with depression. And I think this is really helpful because it shows us that one of the things we need to do if this is our struggle or or this is the struggle of a friend is it's important to process. It's important to reflect. It's important to talk. And we'll look in a second about how God tries to bring Jonah out and talk. It is important to do that. Now, we may talk to God. God is there to talk to. The Bible wants us to know that with all our feelings and experiences. It might also be right to talk to loved ones, to family, to parents, uh, to, to people at church that we know and trust well. It may well be appropriate to talk to a doctor or a professional counselor. I'm not a doctor or a professional counselor. Uh, that's not the kind of service Uh, we're able to offer here at church, but we can signpost people. So if this is something that you are wrestling with and struggling with, please don't keep quiet. And if you would like that kind of help and don't know where to turn, then please come to us. I do want to say this is not a magic wand. It's not if you talk about it, then everything will be neat and tidy. Jonah 4 doesn't end neat and tidy. It might involve a lot of continual complex wrestling. There might still be big questions left. But I still think the Bible would encourage us not to bottle it up, but to find a safe and appropriate place to talk about it. And as we look at talking, I do also think it's helpful to compare Job's friends in the book of Job with God and how he relates to Jonah here. See, Job's friends, what they do when Job's struggling is they come and they give Job the answers. Job, this is why it's happening. Let me tell you. God draws alongside Jonah here and gives him questions. Wants to begin a discussion. Wants to get him to think and talk through for himself. Not just give him answers, give him questions. Now, that's, that's quite funny, really, because Job's friends, they actually get all the answers wrong. They don't know the answers. But even God, who does know the answers, 
doesn't just pile them on. Instead, he asks questions to help Jonah open up. And that's where we're going next. God's compassion. As he draws alongside Jonah, he starts with a question. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And he's starting to begin a discussion. Jonah doesn't answer. You get this picture of Jonah as God draws alongside him and he'll turn his back and walk away. Not interested, God. But God persists, gently coming after Jonah. And, and I think what God does in these next few verses is summed up nicely by a quotation from a commentator uh, that I uh, read this week. Jonah is being given the opportunity to use his own self-centeredness as a window upon the very heart of God. Jonah is being given the opportunity to use his own self-centeredness as a window upon the very heart of God. And this is what God is going to do gently in the next few verses. He's going to get Jonah out of his own self-centered view of things, and he's going to put him in some different situations. There's a bit of a comic scene here as Jonah makes this shelter. And you get this sense the shelter's not that good. Because even though he's constructed this ramshackle thing, it's not giving him any comfort from the sun's hot rays. And so God provides this leafy plant to grow up over him in verse 6. And you're getting a picture of this Jonah who is not even competent to build a shelter. And yet he thinks he knows better than God what ought to happen to Nineveh. He's sitting there waiting to see what would happen to the city because he thinks it still deserves to be judged. And then in verse 6, the Lord God provides this leafy plant and it grows up over Jonah and gives shade for his head to ease his ra'ah. It's the same word we saw earlier on, discomfort. And do you see what God's doing and what the writer's showing us here? Jonah is being put in the Ninevites' position. They had something hanging over them, a ra'ah, a judgment ready to fall. And he's got something bad hanging over him, this hot sun which is scorching his head. And God brings relief with this plant. And he doesn't bring on Jonah, the ra'ah, the evil. Just like he brought relief to Nineveh. But at dawn the next day, the God, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. Jonah was very happy about the plant at the end of verse 6, but then the plant's taken away, and Jonah gets angry again. See what God's doing very gently? Jonah, you know how you want me to treat Nineveh? How would you like it if I treated you that way? Put yourself in Nineveh's shoes for a moment, Jonah. That's the first way in which he's taking him out of his self-centeredness. Uh, but then he goes one stage further. So Jonah does get angry, and he asks him another question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. And God says, look, you, you claim to be concerned for this plant, but it sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. Your love for this plant is just shallow, shallow and selfish, Jonah. My love for the Ninevites, I'm their creator. My love for them is deep and compassionate and real. 
put yourself in my shoes, Jonah. And don't just put yourself in the Ninevite shoes and think about how you'd want to be. Put yourself in my shoes. You claim to care for this plant that you've done nothing for. Shouldn't I care about them who I've created and who I love? I've got pity for them, says God. They don't know their right hand from their left. They're ignorant. Yes, they've done wicked and foolish things, but they really don't know any better. I have pity on them. God is showing Jonah he's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the whole world. There's some interesting things about the names used for God. He starts off the chapter as the Lord, the God of Israel, the covenant God. And then it starts calling him God halfway through. And in between, in verse 6, it calls him the Lord God. And then he goes back to being the Lord in the last couple of verses. And those name changes are are signaling something to us that, that the God who is the God of Israel is also the God of the whole world. And Jonah needs to understand that. He needs to put himself in Nineveh's shoes, yes, but in God's shoes too. And see that God is going to have love and compassion for all his creatures. And the way God ends with a question, and the story ends with a question, shouldn't I care? It it leaves us with a challenge. The reader is meant to, to read this and go, do I see any of Jonah's attitude in me? Do I get resentful about God showing mercy to some people? Do I see any of Jonah's heart in me? And and is that connected really to a small view of God? Do I really want a small God that I can control and tell who to do what what I want him to do? That's not the God the Bible gives us. It's not the God who is real and living. But just as we conclude this sermon... uh, I want us just to step back for a second and and look at the big God's big picture. The big God's big picture. I said Jonah ended with a question and only one other book in the Old Testament ends with a question. And that is the book of Nahum. It's said a hundred or so years after Jonah and it's all about judgment. Judgment falling on Nineveh. God relents in compassion And doesn't bring judgment on Nineveh here. But they return to their wicked ways eventually. And eventually judgment does fall on them. But that judgment falls on God's timetable, not on Jonah's. It's God who gets to decide who gets judgment and who gets mercy. And when. But what about the consequences of God's compassion? Because in the Bible story, in that hundred year gap... Between Jonah and Nahum, something big and important happens. Jonah's people, the northern kingdom of Israel, get destroyed. They get wiped out by Assyria, by Ninevites. Because God relents here, Assyria is still around in 50 years or so to wipe out Jonah's people. God's patience results in disaster for them. And you might be sitting there in anger thinking, what? What gives God the right to show compassion, to show mercy like this when there are real consequences for us? When the wicked get let off? What gives God the right when others 
suffer. There's God putting Jonah in Nineveh's shoes and putting Jonah in his shoes. But, but what about him? It's all very well for him safe in heaven. What about if he had to come down and wear our shoes? But of course he did. That's the very heart of the Bible's story. That this big, free, sovereign God did exactly that. He was big enough to make himself small and hang on a cross for me and for you. And as he did it and as people were killing him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know their right hand from their left. A God like this, a God who is the free, sovereign, ultimate authority of the universe, but also knows what it is to become small, to become a victim of injustice, to suffer at the hands of the wicked, is the only God who is truly competent and truly able to judge and to dispense mercy. He knows better than all of us the consequences of showing compassion. He is the only one fit to judge, the God who is big enough to make himself small on the cross. Now, that is not an answer to the riddles, by the way. Please don't think I've answered the questions that Jonah... You might still have those questions burning, but, but what the Bible gives us is not an answer. It gives us a picture of a God who would become small and die on the cross for us. A God who is truly big enough to trust. To come before in awe and worship and say, yeah, you're the kind of God I can trust to make the right calls about judgment and mercy.